involved in this, all Watermark members. And the idea was to, well, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of explain the idea, but let me just tell you who else is here. Connie Altman, and uh, she's been a part of this planning process. And Anthony Polonsky, is he in this room? Anthony. Anthony, well, you'll, you'll meet him shortly. Uh, but the idea is roots. Roots, understanding the Jewish faith, which wasn't necessarily our title. But I think that uh, God's hand was in it. In fact, no, I know God's hand is in it. Uh, and the reason why is understanding the Jewish faith. There's Anthony Polanski right back there. Raise, raise your hand, Anthony. So, so you'll hear from him. And, uh, but understanding the Jewish faith. So one of the things when we got together to speak, how are we going to talk about this? Well, we decided not to go through every detail of the Jewish religion. Why? Because it is extremely difficult and it will often take a lifetime. And there's so many different variants and how do you approach it and so on. So we decided to go with how we as Christians connected with our Jewish roots. And in that understanding the Jewish faith, in that through the Bible, in other words, through God's eyes. And uh, so this isn't meant to be, this is what the Jewish people believe. But you will gain a lot of insight into that. You're welcome to ask any questions about that. Uh, A lot of people here have had a lot of interaction, maybe a little bit of interaction. But we wanted to give you a bit of the heart, the heart and soul of the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, Israel. And that way you get an inspiration to learn more. We didn't want to uh, go into a complete biblical understanding, but just catch some highlights and inspire you to learn more, because we cannot cover this within three hours. And I, I did, we didn't want to try. And so uh, we'll, we'll, leave it, we'll, we'll give you kind of a highlights, some things that God has really put on our heart that uh, you can interact with and ask questions, and, uh, and also just to begin to say, God, where am I in this? Uh, One of the titles was, From Abraham to the Synagogue to the Church to You. And so that is one of the aspects that we really want to highlight, is how do you fit in with this? What does this mean for you uh, as as a believer? Now, we were told that uh, uh, some people may be guests. I want to welcome any guests here uh, to to training day. And if you're not familiar... uh, uh, with Watermark, you can go on the website and find out all the information. So, uh, but we also want you to know that if you're here in this class, that our perspective is coming from a Jesus-believing perspective. And so uh, we're, we're, not, we're not here to uh, 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 try to represent any other perspective, uh, but from Christians, believers in Jesus, uh, who have been saved by grace, not by what we've done, but by what God has done, so that we might know Him. And that's why I didn't feel the necessity to, to make sure that every aspect of the biblical is up front for you and try to parse everything and how that relates to the Israel and the Jewish people and so on, because uh, those who uh, know Him have the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would be your primary teacher. So I don't want to get in the way of that either. Uh, and, and that's one of the aspects that we talked about. Uh, but just to begin, just to let you know what we're doing this morning, we're, we're actually going to have two breaks. 
So we're going to try to break it up into three parts. And the first part is an introduction of why this is even brought to Watermark. And why, uh, do we need more chairs? Do we need, okay, more seats? Uh, and why this was brought to Watermark. And Lisa's going to share a little bit about that. And then we're going to get kind of fly at 30,000 feet, kind of go over the entire Jewish history, <laughs> even though I said we weren't going to completely do that. So from 30,000 feet, and how it interacts with church history and how it brings us up to the present day. And then we're going to go into some, some Q&A and then a break. And then the second hour, we've got a couple testimonies, one by Connie, and then kind of explain how understanding our Jewish roots and Jewish faith can really enhance our faith as Christians and that connection. So it's very exciting to understand that. And Carla, my wife Carla and I will be uh, uh, talking a bit about that. And then we're going to go into another Q&A and a break. In the third hour, we've got uh, Anthony Polanski explaining a little bit more of his testimony and how he came to interact with it, uh, with this, uh, the idea of the, the Jewish roots. And then uh, we will go into understanding more what it means for us today, how to connect with our Jewish friends in a way that shows love and respect, uh, how to connect uh, uh, with what is happening with Israel as a nation, the only Jewish nation in the world. So all these things will be covered, and then we'll have another Q&A session. So we're going to encourage lots of interaction, lots of thoughts. Write down your questions. We're going to have uh, nice periods of Q&A. So without further ado, um, we want to start out uh, with this video. So I'm going to ask you this. First of all, how are you as a Christian affected by the nation of Israel? How am I affected by Israel? How am I as a Christian affected by the nation of Israel? How am I as a Christian affected by the nation of Israel? Israel, that's God's chosen nation, God's chosen people. So that means I'm affected, you're affected, we're all affected by Israel. Jesus himself was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. I mean, come on. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. And he walked on water. He wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a Baptist. He wasn't from California. He was a Jew from Israel. Did you know that 80% of the Bible was actually written in Hebrew by the Jewish people? And what do I say? <laughs> what do you want me to say to that? Because um, I could be like, uh, duh. I mean, really? 80% of the Bible was written in Hebrew by Jewish people. So um, it just kind of makes sense that um, that the Christian faith was, was founded on the Jewish belief. The Jews don't need us as Christians to explain their faith. But us as Christians, we need the Jews to explain our roots, our faith. Judaism can stand without Christianity. But Christianity cannot stand without Judaism. Christians, we are not our own tree. We've been grafted in. That's part of our foundation. It's, it's part of who we are, the core of, of what we believe. To. I want to introduce you, uh, Lisa Bird. Uh, she came and she was about a year ago, right? Well, I'll let, you tell her, uh, let her tell you uh, the story, but uh, she's the one that is the reason why this class is happening. So we wanted uh, to allow her to share this. There you go. Good morning. Can you all hear me okay? Okay, great. Um, my name is Lisa, and I want to add my welcome to all of you this morning for coming out. And I pray that uh, God will have great things in store for you today since uh, you've all trusted us with this time. Um, in March 2009, my husband Steve and I, along with his brother and sister-in-law, were able to go with Dallas Theological Seminary 
to Israel. And it was the first time for any of us. And it was, it was a wonderful trip, as you can imagine. How many of you all have been to Israel? A fair number. Okay. Um, if you get the opportunity to go, um, please take the Lord up on that. Um, but anyway, we um, on our return home, Steve thought that it would be good to write Todd, the pastor here at our church, a letter about this experience. So I just have that, a little bit of that in front of me, and I was going to read it to you. Um, we recently traveled to Israel, Todd, and our trip was organized through Dallas Theological Seminary. It was a combination of geography, topography, theology, and sociology. We toured for approximately two weeks, and the days were full, accommodations were very comfortable, and the daily teachings were deep and over the top. This tour not only enriched our understanding of Scripture, but it made us see and feel the living presence of our Lord and Savior. We could see His continued grace toward His chosen people and His blessings to the very special land of Israel. We were both touched by a strong desire to love on the nation and their Arab friends. We both remarked how ideally suited you, Todd, and Watermark would be for conducting such a visit. So I think at that point in time, the reason I'm reading this is I think that's where what we're doing here today was conceived. So for me, it's kind of a birth of what God put in my heart and his heart that day. Uh, We also believe that anyone on such a trip would be truly blessed and that with the energy and Watermark, A ministry benefiting the Jewish people would surely evolve. We are both ready and willing to help facilitate any of this if there's an interest within our church. And I think most of you, if you're very far down your walk um, with the Lord, um, would agree with this. We also wrote, humbly we submit to you and the elders that we believe there are crucial periods in God's plan throughout history. Uh, where people, singularly or in plural, are called to assist in the forward surge of God's revelation to his creation. We want to be present and accounted for as willing workmen, ready for the task as the veil is lifted from the hearts and minds of God's chosen people. So the particular day that the Lord impressed on me that um, that he was um, speaking to me was our last day in Jerusalem. We'd made our tour up from the south to Jerusalem. We'd been there about, I think this was our fourth day. And uh, it was a really bright rainwashed day. You know how those days get clear, the sky's blue, and uh, the Jerusalem stone is really white. And... Uh, uh, the sun was just reflecting, and I got off the got on the bus that day, and I just said, "Lord, let me see this city through your eyes today." And um, that prayer was <laughs> faithful because I felt a uh, just a uh, like just a heaviness had come upon me, and I really thought and many women could probably relate to this, but I really thought I might just be getting in a bad mood or or something. I couldn't really figure out what was what was going on, but um, you know, the tour progressed from. Gethsemane, I mean, it was a heavy day of teaching, but it, pro- it progressed from Gethsemane and ended up before lunch in Caiaphas' court where Jesus was the night of his arrest. And uh, many of the places that you walk in the Holy Land, they'll say, you know, you're going to walk where Jesus walked, but you might walk, you know, 25 feet above where he walked, or you might walk below where he walked. But this particular place in Caiaphas' court, we were actually on the very stones where they believed Jesus was that night. And uh, the group... You know, gradually transitioned into lunch and all the chatter and motion that goes along with that. And I just couldn't get it. I just was like, I just can't 
I, can't, I, I, I almost got to where I couldn't breathe. I don't know if Mary and Jimmy can remember that or not, but I got to where I just couldn't breathe. And Steve's like, "What is wrong with you?" And I said, "Well, I just I feel like I need to get somewhere high." And um, so he took me out of the streets of the quarter, and we went upstairs to the quarter cafe, and then they have like a second level. And before I could get there, I was weeping like uncontrollably. Uh, is that slide up? Do you have that? I was just weeping uncontrollably, and uh, I couldn't, <laughs> still, you know, my head and my hands, I mean, it was just a heaviness. And some, a couple of verses came to me as I looked out across to my left, and I could see the whole Mount of Olives out across. And it was just like, I, I said, I'm seeing it through your eyes, aren't I, Lord? And um, the, one of the verses that came to me was, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing, but you would not. And it goes on. And another verse that came to me that day was in Luke 19, 41 and 42. It says, As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And I realized the horrible sorrow that the Lord Jesus must have felt. And uh, he'd come to these people that he created and that he had planned to be, you know, have them be the light to the nations, and they had totally rejected him. I shared this experience a little bit later with Todd. I don't know why. I mean, he probably got four emails over the course of a couple of years from me. But he was very gracious. And I told him about the trip. And I said, I don't know why I have such a, a desire to learn more about Jewish history, about the church history and relation. But there's, there's something God's got planned. And I'm going to just be a faithful witness and march along. Well, because of that email, I think, um, he began to send any emails that he got from anybody that even mentioned the word Israel. And you're just like, I'm going to send this on to Lisa. And uh, so <laughs> it was kind of interesting. But people would hear a sermon he might give, and they'd say, well, I wish we could have connected the dots more. Or, you know, think about Watermark. We're sitting here in the highest density of Jewish people in Dallas. What are we doing, you know, to reach out and, and create friendship with, you know, just things like that. So uh, over time, this is how the core group of Anthony, Connie, uh, Andrew, and, and Carla, myself, um, Another person that I met during the time that I was uh, going through all this was Chris Katulka. He's a young man from Dallas Theological Seminary. And uh, he helped me when Todd says, why don't you work on a ministry plan? Why don't you direct some of this energy? And so uh, Chris kind of came alongside me and uh, we presented the plan to the elders here, which is probably in some archive or something like that. But the first deal was training day class. So, um, But anyway, Chris said, I said, what should we, you know, what should really be our prayer? And he said, well, our prayer should be that your pastor, Todd, goes to Israel. So we started praying, Todd, go to Israel, Todd, go to Israel. And uh, he did. Not too long after that, he went. And over that next 18 months, he's been a full three times to Israel. So I'm looking forward to what, you know, that might mean to our church. Um, Another person that's been a supporting cast, and only recently, but in a great way for our church, is uh, someone who's trained at Southwestern Seminary. Her name's Amy Downey. And she and Chris both, he through DTS and she through, you know, her learning at, at Southwestern, they both have a heart for the Jewish people that is 
just unbelievable. So they've undergirded us as we've moved along in this process. So um, all this is just to say, um, so what have I done? You know, what did I do when I came home? I thought that I would share that with you. I, I first had to ask, am I just learning for learning's sake? You know, sometimes you get interested in something, you just learn for, for that, and you don't really... Um, have a good reason, but I believe that the Lord was wanting me to become equipped um, so that we, so that I could share the salvation of Ju- Jesus back to the Jews. Uh, so how have I done that? Uh, it's not something that you, you you don't find it just real easily. It's not like a class that's usually given or whatever. So first thing I did was go back and review the covenants of uh, God with Israel. In fact, Connie and I are doing a, a women's Bible study with Amy right now on that. Uh, there's a, uh, some online coursework that can be done. There's something called the Institute of Jewish Studies. I looked at Jewish history. I didn't even know really what most Jews know about how the interface happened with the church um, and so I, I looked at that, and we'll learn a little bit more about that with Andrew in a few minutes. I looked at the prophecies, how what was written in the Old Testament came true in the New Testament. I keep an eye on um, current events and how they affect Israel today. Um, and I look at uh, Jewish history, because whether we think about the Holocaust often or not, that is first and foremost in the minds of most Jewish people, and it affects how they uh, relate to the church um anyway what i routinely do with the passion like on a daily basis what's well, like any of us on our spiritual journeys you uh, i incorporate prayer bible study and being uh, associated with uh, a community of like-minded believers i pray specifically for israel in Psalms 122, um, it says that uh, we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem, which is essentially praying, praying for Christ's return. That's the only time there's going to be peace. Uh, and it says in Second Timothy that those who pray for my return, they will be blessed. So that's there's a good part of that, too. Um, and then I meet and learn from people that are further down this path, like Chris and Amy and Andrew, who have studied uh, the Jewish history, Jewish, uh, just everything Jewish, since they were small children and uh, through college and into their postgraduate. And then I study the scriptures so that, like all of us are asked to do, that we'll be prepared in season and out of season, that we'll be prepared to give a, an answer for the hope that's within us, and that uh, hopefully, as in Romans 11, 11 says, that Uh, God will use me and us to make the Jewish people envious of the grace that he has offered. And in closing, thank you all so much for your attention. In closing, I just want to say that alongside the Paul, the the Apostle Paul, I would like to offer my prayer that, um, brethren, it is my great desire and prayer to God for the Israelites that they might be saved. And my prayer to you today is that God might light a fire in as many parts as possible, that you'll become passionate and educated about Israel and uh, God's everlasting love and plan for her, and that you might look to see if there's a way you might serve him in fulfilling that plan. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, I just, we just thought it was really important to kind of highlight, okay, why is this here? Why is this at, uh, at this church? And uh, one of the aspects... That because Todd is teaching, our pastor here at Watermark, Todd Wagner, is teaching on the book of John. And one of the aspects of the book of John that he's uh, going through is when he spoke to the Samaritan woman. And there's a phrase in there that's very interesting that Jesus says. He says, salvation, well, actually, the Samaritan woman is trying to discuss theology and says, hey, you, you worship on... Uh, 
on, uh, on Mount Zion. Uh, but we Samaritans wor- uh, worship here uh, on, the, on the Mount, uh, uh, was it Moriah? No, that's, what, which mountain is it? Gerizim. Uh, Mount Gerizim. Uh, and, and he corrects her. And he says, uh, you do not know what you worship, <laughs> but we worship correctly. I'm putting this in, in word. For salvation is of the Jews. So that's a very odd statement. Uh, but it, if you think about it, you take away the Jewish contribution to Christianity. And what do we have? If you take away the covenants, the Bible, you take away who Jesus is, the culture, and the people that God intended to bring uh, his purposes through, you, you don't have anything left. You're standing on nothing. So that's why it's very important to understand the roots and the biblical covenants. And again, this is 30,000 feet. So you're going to have to go back and study it yourself. So this is going to be a broad overview just to get you back to, to, to where we are today and to give you a kind of a, a bearing. This is kind of like looking at a map. We're not down driving through the, the roads. We're looking at a map. That's what we're doing here. And God starts out with covenants. And the covenants aren't always just with the Jewish people. Some of it were the entire world. So that you have the covenants uh, that God gave to Adam and Eve. You have the covenants that God gave to Noah after the flood. Uh, and that's kind of the basis of human government, so to speak. And then you have the covenants when God calls Abraham. Now, that's an amazing thing, because if you look at the history of Genesis, and of course, I'm not going to go too much into it, because then you can go over to the Genesis class over across the way, but you have basically a, a time warp, and then all of a sudden a screeching halt with the covenant to Abraham. Most of Genesis deals with God's covenant through Abraham, and then going on to the Jewish people in Exodus. And the rest of the Bible, more or less, uh, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, deals with God's covenant with Israel, the Jewish people. And so it it fast-forwards real quick, gets to Abraham, takes a screeching halt, and then we hear Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And that you is, is a plural you. And it's repeated again in Numbers when the nation of Israel is coming out of, of Egypt. And Balaam, who was hired to curse Israel, this is Numbers 24, uh, who was hired to curse Israel, actually begins to bless. And he repeats that statement. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Now, in God's covenants, and this is something that Christianity got a little bit later. In God's covenants, in, in, in biblical faith, in the Jewish faith, there, there's no demarcation line between that which is physical and that which is spiritual. Does that make sense? There's no, there's no separation. What you do in the physical affects the spiritual, and spiritual affects the, uh, the uh, physical. So even bringing that up and having to say that shows us our mindset which is largely affected by the Greek world, what has affected our thinking, where we actually even have to begin thinking between physical and the spiritual, because in the biblical mindset, it's all the same. And that's why when God creates a covenant, we would say, okay, there's a promise that I will bless those who bless you, and I, all the families of the earth 
will be blessed through you. We are the recipients of that promise. But then he makes a promise of land, physical land, setting boundaries at a time period in world history where boundaries did not exist. You have to understand that. The nation state really did not begin, where boundaries did not begin with Nap- until Napoleon in the, in, the, uh, you know, in, the, in the 1700s, in the 18th century. But with Napoleon... He, he, he brought something about boundaries. But God has, in the Bible, thousands of years before boundaries. Why? Because all the nations had one thing in mind. Our God is the greatest, we're going to take over all the earth. With the Jewish people, our God is God of all the earth, and he gives us boundaries. And not only that, he gives us tiny boundaries. And that's what he says when he, when he calls... Abraham, and he makes this promise, I'm going to bless the world through you. Look at the stars. Look, look at all that's in the heavens. And that's how many people are going to be blessed and how many, descend, how many descendants you're going to have. And then he spends most of his life childless and has Isaac. I mean, if you look at it and you get away from kind of the religiosity and you're reading the Bible and stuff, it's hilarious. It's extremely funny. Because he promises all this, and then at the end of his life, basically, he gives him Isaac. And then he reinstates those promises through Isaac. All the promises he gives, he says to Abraham, so he repeats them to Isaac, both spiritual and physical, both promises for the future and physical realities of, of land and covenant you know, uh, between people, uh, between God and, and, and his people. And then there comes Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob, again, the promises are repeated to him. Promises that all the world would be blessed through uh, God's covenant with them. Promises of the land with boundaries. Promises of, uh, that, of, uh, of, of circumcision. Uh, again, circumcision is incredibly important for the Jewish people, in that God's promises are as much physical as they are spiritual. And we're not going to get into the whole circumcision debate. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, it's not always fun to talk about either. But, uh, but, one of the, but that's an important aspect to, to know is, is that God cares covenant, and it, and it cuts through everything. Uh, emotional, spiritual, physical, boundaries, a place, a land where his covenant can go forward. And so we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God begins to call himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he changes the name of Jacob to Israel. And that's where we get Israel. And Israel, I love that name because it kind of has a a double meaning. And you see it because he wrestled with God. You know that scene where he wrestles with God in, uh, in, uh, uh, in, in Genesis uh, by Bethel, or the house of God. And that wrestling with God is one of the names of Israel, is what Israel means, wrestling with God, striving, struggling with God. But it also has another meaning, because, you know, Hebrew does that. It has double meanings for everything. And it's Israel, man who sees God. So there's a don't, you struggle and you see. You struggle and you see. Does that not feel like our lives? <laughs> we have moments where you see him so clearly and you know he's real and the next minute you're, you're, you're struggling. Bless me, God. I'm going to tackle you and you've just disjointed my leg and I'm hurting. 
But that's the kind of idea, that's, that's the God that we worship. The very real, tangible, physical God. And, uh, and that's what's exciting. And so God then ties his name to a people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then through them, you know, they, they go off uh, in, down to Egypt, and you hear about Joseph and the 12 sons and, of, of Jacob, and uh, they get, go into captivity. Well, then God calls them out of Egypt. That's the Exodus story, uh, where, where they're liberated. Now, they weren't liberated, they weren't brought to salvation or deliverance because of anything they did. That's, that's the, the metaphor of salvation for us, is that they didn't do anything other than cry out and ask for help. And then God did the rest. So anyone who tries to you know, separate New Testament, Old Testament, God's grace versus law, that's garbage. It's grace all the way through. And God's grace was right there, and he pulls them out, of, he delivers them from Egypt with mighty signs and wonders, brings them uh, out into the desert where he gives them the Torah which is often translated in the Greek, nomos, which is where we get law. But in the Hebrew, it's teaching. It's the idea of someone interacting one-on-one, teaching. That relationship idea is there. In fact, the children of Israel heard that from the mountain, God's words. In fact, it was so terrifying that they said, well, you know, maybe we'll go through Moses, because it's a little terrifying to hear it directly from God. But that's the, that's the God that uh, was uh, of Israel, it was right there with him. And so that's the heart and mind, and that interaction uh, with, with his people. Now, we can go through, I'm going to fast forward again. So we have covenants and promises that are directly toward the Jewish people. Okay? They get settled into the land. God raises up judges. They don't want judges. So God gives them a king. They cry out for a king. God gives them a king. And even though they, God didn't really want to give them a king, uh, by the time we get to King David, you have Saul and then King David. Uh, through King David is the line of what will ultimately be the Mashiach, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ in, in Greek. And so what I, I, that just baffles my mind. This is that people cried out for something that God did not really want to give them. And then through that thing that, that God communicated he didn't really want to do, but wanted to be direct, he said, through them I will give the Messiah. Because, uh, you know, someone was talking, God's kind of like the, uh, the GPS. You know, when you miss your turn, he just reroutes you. And that's what he did with the nation of Israel, and that's what he does with us. And that, that's one of the titles of this class, is, is that, you know, all of this to you. You know, Israel's story is our story. Is each one of our story. You know, we can't sit there and go, oh, the Jewish people did this, and they did this, and Israel did this, and they missed it. Well, I would never do that. Well, guess what? We do it daily. The history of Israel is in our lives daily, of not listening to God, turning to other things, and so on and so forth. So before you get, you know, high and mighty, you know, look at Israel and the Jewish people, that's one of the aspects that um, we have to, wait a minute, humble ourselves and, and get back to. So going fast forward, again, to uh, the second temple period. Now what happens? They're taken off in Babylonian captivity. They are brought back. And you have the book of Ezra and Nehemiah where they're reestablishing what the Jewish people will be. 
And in our Bibles, in the Old Testament, it just kind of ends there. Well, there's actually some, t- some things that happen in between there and, and when Jesus comes. And one of which is, have you ever heard of Hanukkah? Okay, have you ever heard of Hanukkah? Okay, Hanukkah, the, f- the Feast of Dedication, is the way it's described in the book of John. Uh, yes, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Um, I don't know about the dreidel. We haven't found a dreidel old enough that actually, you know, says that they were spinning the dreidels then, but that, you know, that's another story. So we have a situation where Israel comes back, but then the Greeks come in. Okay? And the Greeks did something that was called Hellenization. It was Greek, make everyone Greek. Change their thinking, change their life, you know, even reverse circumcision. Uh, we won't go into that detail. Uh, and it, it, it culminated with uh, Antioch Epiphanies. Have you ever heard of the word, oh, I had an epiphany? Okay. Antioch Epiphanies was an extreme anti-Semite, and he went and took a pig and offered it at the altar at the temple. Okay. So he desecrated the temple and of the Jewish people. And uh, so when the Maccabees, and you can read about that in the book of the Maccabees, the, the Catholics decided to keep a lot of these books that were Jewish books written in Greek. Uh, but the, the Maccabees, if you read about that history, uh, then you, you, you learn about what happened there and how they, they, they beat the, the Greeks and uh, they actually allied themselves with the Romans in order to do that. Uh, but uh, and then they beat the Greeks and they rededicated the temple. They didn't have enough oil, so they uh, had enough oil for one day, but it lasted eight days. That's why there's eight lights on Hanukkah and so on and so forth. So they rededicated the temple and they had a nation again in in Israel. Uh, that didn't last very long. The Romans came in and said, "Well, we allied with you, and now we just own you." So that's what happened. And then, so the time of Jesus, second temple period. That's the first temple which was built by Solomon, King David's son. The second temple was built uh, at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And we, we can read about that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So the second temple period and the setting of Roman occupation and brutality is the time when Jesus showed up. Uh, and... The environment was that probably when Jesus was much younger, uh, up in the Galilee region, uh, uh, there was very brutal prefects over, and then they, uh, the kings would pay more or less to be the king, so King Herod would pay tribute. He was rich, and so he got to be king, and he wasn't even really Jewish, he was half Jewish. So all kinds of politics are happening. And what happened was, is, is that Jesus was one of many who claimed to be the Messiah, who wanted to throw off the yoke of Rome. In fact, Pilate, prior to being allowed back, and then you see the scene with Jesus, was taken out because he was so brutal. He was taken out by the Roman emperor and almost you know, chastised and so on and so forth. He was taken to Rome and chastised because of how brutal he was. For example, one time to put down a rebellion up in the Galilee region, Galilee was a big problem for Rome, Uh, they crucified a thousand people in one day. Jesus probably saw that when he was younger. And so the tension was high. Anyone who claimed to overthrow Rome, anyone who claimed to be the Messiah, the King of Israel, uh, was targeted for death. No questions. And so that's the environment. So when you read the New Testament, that's the environment that's happening. 
And then you have the Galileans, and then often uh, Jews could mean both the Jewish people as kind of we know it, but also a regional name for Judea. So you kind of, and the Judeans kind of were in cahoots with Rome, the Judean leadership, the Jewish leadership down there, and so on. And then other Jews were upset. And so all of a sudden you started forming all different kinds of sects, sects, S-E-C-T-S, of Jews. Uh, Some believe this, some believe that. You have the Dead Sea Scrolls people. You have more Galileans. You have the Zealots. You have the Pharisees. You have the Sadducees. You have... And it goes on and on and on. And even if you do the Pharisees, you have a couple houses of Pharisees. You have the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai and all of this kind of stuff. Because everyone's like, how are we going to follow God the right way in order to throw off the yoke of Rome, which is what they understood was salvation. Salvation to the Jewish people is freedom from tyranny so they can worship God. This idea that salvation means personal salvation so I can have eternal life and all of that was a little bit foreign. It was a part of it, but it wasn't the primary thing on the burner. And so that's the environment. So when Jesus was killed, uh, uh, in that, if you were to be a Jew living at that time, it was like, oh, another one. And this one I, it was maybe really good, or I really liked, and maybe he said some things that were a little bit over the top, and, and so on. But hey, another one. Another one gets crucified because of a heart of freedom for the Jewish people. Freedom and sovereignty, which is what we thought, and that's what they started using the law for, the Torah, at the time of Jesus. And that's what Paul was kind of interacting with, is that he was saying, uh, they were saying salvation. Again, thinking, throwing off the yoke of Rome, is be- and we're, we're under that yoke because we're not following the Torah, the law correctly. We're not following his teachings the right way. So then that's where a lot of the, the, the groups began, because they're arguing, wait, which one is going to... Be the right one that will help us throw off the yoke of Rome. And so a little bit, the way I explain it is, is that using the Torah, which was intended for uh, uh, right living with God uh, uh, in the nation of Israel when it is independent, and then using that Torah to try to gain salvation is a little bit like taking a saw and hammering a nail. It's the wrong tool for the job. So, and Paul was kind of bringing some of that up and saying, it's not that the Torah is bad. It's not that the Torah is thrown away. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the Torah and the prophets, but to fill them, fulfill them. And so, um, I think I'm spending a little time. My timer is warning me. So, we'll get through that. So that. But I wanted to kind of pause there, and that's kind of the environment. And we can come back and ask questions about that. But then afterwards, and this is where we're going to kind of fast forward, Jesus died. He has followers, Jewish people who were following him as the anointed one, the Messiah, the Moshiach. Following him then began what is known as the church, the community, the ecclesia in Greek, or, um, uh, which is uh, also from, or it, it, both are pulled from the same word in the Greek, both synagogue and ecclesia and so on. It means community, God's community. Okay? And when the church began to form, uh, and, and there was some interaction with the Jewish people. Uh, there was still a lot of resistance around uh, Jerusalem and some of those areas, and that's what Paul was involved with. But you have a situation afterwards where really, as scholars ex- describe to try to make the point, is two Judaisms. Judaism is the religion of, of the Jewish people, but two Judaisms survived after the death of Jesus. 
Uh, and after the destruction, because ultimately Rome just got upset and said, okay, that's it. And 40 years after the death of Jesus, the temple was destroyed. Uh, another uh, 50 or so years after 135 A.D., uh, then the entire people were wiped out that were living in that area, pretty much, the entire Jewish people. Percentage-wise, it was as bad as the Holocaust uh, at that time. So the only Jews that really survived were a lot of Jews who had fled or who were already living outside of that area. And so the Jews who were a part of that, and, and you could say more or less directly, rejected Jesus' claim of the Messiah, were, were no longer surviving. And two survived, and uh, there was two houses of Pharisees, uh, or Pushrim, and that is the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. And it's so fun to read the Bible and see Jesus interact with the Pharisees, because he, he, he agrees with one side sometimes, he agrees with another side sometimes, and, but he, he never just agrees with one all the time. Uh, just an example, on marriage, he agreed with the more st- uh, strict version, which is the house of Shammai. And uh, most of the time, uh, he agreed with the house of Hillel. Anyway, that's just the idea that there was a variance in there. And uh, mostly, the majority of the Jews in Israel were house of Shammai, which are very strict. And the house of Hillel were outside of Israel. After that, the house of Hillel was the uh, majority. So... Jewish people, through the Pharisaic idea, through Hillel, survived and became what is now known as Rabbinic Judaism, which is Judaism. Then we have Christianity, which also came from that that Jewish faith, that Jewish root. So that's why they often say there's two Judaisms that survived. One is Christianity, which welcomed in the Gentiles, and the other ones uh, uh, went in a different direction. So that's just kind of give you a quick... But then... The majority of the Christians, or those who believed in Jesus, became Gentiles. And you even see a hint of it in Rome, where the Gentiles became arrogant and started saying, well, what's wrong with the Jews that they don't believe, and so on and so forth. Uh, And they became arrogant. And Romans 9 through 11, I know we read Romans often through the lens of our personal salvation instruction, but if you read Romans 9 through 11, so important to see how Paul deals with the arrogance of the Gentiles over the Jewish people, even the ones that don't believe yet. And that's why when you read, it's like the church or the Gentiles, Israel, and so on and so forth. And we could, that's, that's a class in and of itself that I think would be fantastic to teach. So you have church history coming out of that, and what ended up happening is a lot of the church fathers started making statements about Israel and the Jewish people, that God has rejected them, he no longer wants them. Uh, in fact, all the blessings now come to the Christians and the, those who follow Jesus, and all the curses go to the Jewish people. So they kind of pick and choose there, say, we get the blessings, they get the curses, and so on. And, and that scenario kind of set up what is, can be known as supersessionism or replacement theology. In other words, God's covenants and everything with the Jews, done, and it's now only through the church. Where I, where I would say a biblical understanding is God doesn't cancel covenants. He doesn't make mistakes. He's not a you know, human that he should lie. But they build on one another. They bring out a fuller picture from one another. They don't cancel each other. And so all the covenants and promises towards the Jewish people are still alive and intact 
But we have something else. We have a branch being grafted in a wild olive branch, as Paul says. Uh, and you can do that. You can't kill an olive tree. You can just throw branches in there and they'll just grow. You can cut off a branch and throw it on the ground and it'll grow. In fact, that's why it's the, uh, the symbol of the nation of Israel is, is that no matter what you try to do to it, it always survives because that's God's promise and God's covenant. And so you have that situation, but a lot of church fathers were making statements against uh, the Jewish people in Israel and against those covenants that God made with them. And this is a video that will highlight that and bring us right up to the present. So, You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to show favor to her. The appointed time has come. nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the exiles of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Without question, the re-establishment of the state of Israel is one of the greatest wonders of our times. The Jewish people have always remained faithful to their homeland throughout the countries of their dispersion, never ceasing to pray and hope for their return. Today, they have reclaimed the wilderness, revived their language, and have built cities and villages, fulfilling their longing for national independence. must not forget that the state of Israel came into being after a long history of suffering and persecution, often at the hands of those proclaiming to be Christians. Christian anti-Semitic beginnings can be traced to the early church fathers. They taught that the church was the true and only Israel, and that God's covenants with the Jewish people were no longer valid. This paved the way to 1900 years of cruelty inflicted on the Jewish people in the name of Christianity. The Holy Roman Empire outlawed synagogues and decreed any Jew caught proselytizing would be condemned to burning at the stake. The Crusader period, the Jews were offered the option between Christian baptism or death. The Inquisition of Spain and Portugal, lasting hundreds of years, was ordained by the Catholic Church to stamp out heresy. The unfortunate Jews who were unable to flee from the region were eliminated through agonizing methods of torture. In the 16th century, Martin Luther penned on the Jews and their lies, containing some of the most abhorrent and vile language ever written against the Jewish people. His teaching helped to spread and perpetuate hatred and suspicion toward world Jewry. Russia took its place in history by persecuting Jewish people with the pogroms. Jews were attacked by so-called Christian populations, looting villages and murdering the occupants, often with church authorities endorsing the attacks and looking on. 
came the culmination of 1900 years of anti-Semitic teaching in Christian society. The Holocaust. I was 18 years old before I heard a lot about that history of the uh, church. Uh, a Catholic priest who wrote on it in the book called The Anguish of the Jews said the pages of Christian history that the Jewish people have memorized have been torn from our history books. The Bible often talks about a stumbling block for the Jewish people uh, when it comes to understanding the Messiah, uh, Jesus. Um, that's because Jesus came in a way that was very hard to understand. And Paul even says a veil was put there. And uh, their rejection means salvation to the Gentiles. I've actually said that to a Jew. You, you know, you're not believing means I get to. So thank you. <laughs> but what happened was, is Christian history put up a wall in front of that stumbling block. Now, do I mean every Christian? Absolutely not. I don't believe for a second that anyone in this room has the heart of Martin Luther, the founder of the Reformation, uh, the Protestant faith toward the Jewish people, and what he wrote about destroying their homes, setting them away, burning their books, uh, saying the devil has no better friend than the Jew. Horrible anti-Semitic statements that were repeated by Adolf Hitler. Was Adolf Hitler a Christian? I'd say not. Uh, Want to get into his religion? He was probably pagan, resurrecting the ancient Germanic culture and so on. But what was interesting is what little the church did. Now you have great luminaries that we like to highlight, uh, like Bonhoeffer, um, <laughs> like uh, Corrie ten Boom. Uh, and we hold on to those and say, well, look, look, there were Christians, and absolutely. <laughs> you could say that there was a remnant. But they, if there was 100 people in this room, there wouldn't be one Christian who would have stood up for the Jewish people. If there was 1,000 people in this room, not one Christian in Europe would have stood up. About one out of every 10,000 actually are on record for doing something. Stephanie Johnson, I saw you walk in, right back there. Uh, and Carla, we, we went on a trip to Poland and Israel. I used to work with college students and uh, connect them with uh, Israel and the Jewish people and standing for them. And we went to, uh, to Poland together. And, uh, and Carla and, and um, I remember this one, we were in, the, in Krakow, learning about the Krakow ghetto. There was a church in Krakow. Uh, that didn't want to be a part of the ghetto. The way the lines were, it would have put this church in the ghetto. They didn't want to be in the ghetto. So they, they applied and lobbied, and so they decided to make the walls of the ghetto, say it's a big square like this, 
go around. Here's the church. Went all the way in, over, and down. So the church didn't have to be in it. So the whole time the church operated in the center of dying, starving, brutalized, abused Jewish people so that they didn't have to take part in it. I don't believe that's the heart of Jesus. Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers. He actually uses that. So if you take the first, you know, you talk about interpretation of scripture, you take the first level and then the overall level. The first level of interpretation is his brothers in the flesh. Because there's different Greek words for brothers. And it actually refers to brothers in the flesh. Whatever you do, the least of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me. Then you can apply it across the board, even if you weren't a Christian or whatever. Whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done it unto me. So we as Christians, and this is what's really been happening in the last 50 years and happening in a more minority scale, but it's happening on a much larger scale in the last 50 years, especially with the shock of the Holocaust. I don't think that the, the, the hatred of the Jewish people was very prevalent in the United States. Uh, Henry Ford uh, would pass out to all of his uh, people the, uh, uh, the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, which is an anti-Semitic forgery that Adolf Hitler based his mind Kampf on, and his hatred of the Jewish people, about how they were going to take over the world. In fact, if you listen to the lies of, of, that all of them say always against the Jewish people, it's the same one that Pharaoh said. They're becoming too numerous. They're threatening our people. There's something wrong with them. We've got to get rid of them. Throw their babies in the, in the, uh, the river. The same lie is the same lie. Satan isn't very uh, um, creative when it comes to that. So what does that mean for us? I, don't, I, I want to go into a break, but this is always a very heavy part to talk about. But I think it's an important part. And this brings up part of what the meaning of repentance is, or teshuva. Now, do we individually repent for what we've done to the Jewish people? Not really. Well, you might. I don't know where your heart is with the Jewish people uh, toward uh, the family of Jesus in the flesh. Maybe you do have to deal with some of that. Maybe you do have some background and some hatred. Maybe it comes out not in direct ways, but just kind of a blanket statement about Pharisees or blanket statements about the Jewish people or this. And I would say that it's extremely important because God's name is on the Jewish people despite who, what they act and who they are because it's not about... It's about God. It's about God's covenant. So repentance, or teshuva, in, uh, in Hebrew, means turning. In other words, we see that the church historically has gone in this direction. Let's turn and go in this direction. Okay, it's, it's where you're walking this way. Wait a minute, that's the wrong path. I'm going to turn and go this direction. And this class is a part of that. You even attending or taking part in repentance, teshuva, changing your way. Um, many of you are probably already on this way, and that's why you're here, and I thank you for being here. Uh, but that's a part of it. And so we want to have that heart going into it, because also as you connect with uh, the Jewish people, uh, you have to understand that Jesus is not a good name. Jesus represents that history. I mean, I've had it said to me directly in my face, how can it that he could be the Messiah of Israel when all of his followers did that? And like with any of us, 
Salvation can only come by the revelation of the Holy Spirit, so luckily we've got him on our side because history doesn't help. But that is something you have to take into heart. Take to heart is the difficulty of understanding how could this be? And so um, and so that's where we are today. Uh, we're at that transition phase where many non-Jewish people are recognizing that and saying, wait a minute, replacement theology, supersession that says God has got rid of the Jewish people, that is not, I know this isn't what the Jewish, uh, the, this church believes, um, as far as the covenants he did have with the Jewish people, but that God is going to bring his ultimate salvation to the ends of the earth. Uh, and that's another class you could have gone to about heaven or revelation. <laughs> so, uh, but, but I think that's really important. And that's what we kind of want to go to is some of the richness. Because of church history, we've missed a lot of the beautiful color that can be a part of understanding our faith as it relates to the Jewish people. As Christians, what Jesus did when he took the Passover. What happened when he was arguing in a certain way? You know, I was like, oh, you know, they were always against Jesus. Well, if you were a Jew, if you were a Jew today, you argue that way, the way he is with the Pharisees. I often tell people his time that he spends arguing the Pharisees actually shows more that he's in agreement with them and willing to work with them than he was upset about them. And actually, their time in spending with Jesus shows that they recognize him as someone worth arguing with. He didn't argue with the Sadducees. He just dismissed them. He says, you don't know what you're believing. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the living, not the dead. You're wrong. Pharisees, he goes back and forth with. In fact, he even told his disciples in, 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 uh, in Matthew, I think it's 24, Matthew 24, is... Remember that the Pharisees sit on the seat of Moses. And we're going to talk about that seat of Moses when we go into the next hour. Uh, so whatever they tell you to do, do it. But do not, in other words, don't, don't be hypocrites. In other words, don't use the Torah to get out of following God's will. And that's what they were doing. They were using it as their, uh, some of them that he was warning about were using it as their play toy to get out of doing what God wanted. And so some of these aspects we want to go into in the next hour, but I want to give a little bit of time for Q&A, and then I want to go into a quick 10-minute break, kind of give you a breather, walk around and everything else. Um, but we can go to about 5, 10 minutes of Q&A. Yes? Matthew 23. Matthew 23, off by one. But is there any other questions about what we covered? Yes, sir. Yes. What happened is is that the Pharisees or um, uh, talk about two houses of Pharisees. They were the major houses. That's the house of Shammai, which was started by a guy named Shammai, and the house of Hillel, which was started by a guy named Hillel. Both of them were contemporaries or just before the time of, uh, before Jesus, and they were uh, Pharisees who said this was the way uh, to follow the Torah, or this is the teaching, here's some wise sayings, and so on. Now, Shammai had very strict uh, interpretations. In other words, if your cow fell into a hole on the Sabbath, you don't get a mound. It's actually written in, uh, in the Jewish traditions and the writings. Hillel would say, well, okay, life is more important, so let's get a mound. Uh, if you're starving on the Sabbath, 
eat even if you're breaking the Sabbath because better to live and enjoy and observe many Sabbaths rather than die and not have any more Sabbaths. Shammai was like, no, no, we don't want to do that. We want, we want to, he took it more strict. So it's very fun for a scholar looking at teachings of Jesus and the Pharisees and so on. And, um, uh, and I'll tell you a little bit about my story, but uh, studying, I studied my master's in Jewish Christian studies, and the professor that I worked with back in the 60s, he was the one that really highlighted that demarcation of how Jesus interacted with the Pharisees and, and how much we can gain. And by dismissing the Pharisees, we really, we really miss out on a lot of really cool stuff. Um, but uh, anyway, anything else? Did that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Any other questions before we go to a break? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a big question. Really, the top of the hierarchy was Rome. Okay, what she asked was uh, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, who were kind of the top dogs uh, at the time. Uh, the real answer is whose money was paying for what during the Second Temple period, and that was Rome. And so Rome only allowed things to happen that Rome wanted. So... If the Pharisees, the elites in Jerusalem, went along with Rome a little bit more, then it was the Pharisees. If it was the Sadducees, it was the Sadducees. If it was the temple elite, it was the temple elite. Um, so it was, more, it was really along that line. Um, but they, they shared a house. It was called the Sanhedrin, where different Jewish leaders would, would come and, and um, be, a part of, be a part of that. Um, and, and many scholars would say it was kind of a puppet court by the time of Jesus. Uh, through Rome, doing kind of what Rome uh, wanted. I mean, there was some interaction, some autonomy, uh, and the Jewish leadership was absolutely terrified of losing what they had. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls community went down to this Dead Sea Scrolls area and separated from the temple because they saw this. They were extremely angry and said, oh, you're just, you're, you're, you know, you're being bought off, is basically what he was saying, what they were saying. And so there was all that going on at the time of Jesus, uh, so to say, these were the top. Some of it's not so clear, but I would definitely say that they were both top, if that makes sense. And the house of Shammai more than the house of Hillel. There's actually writings in Jewish tradition where house of Shammai came into the Sanhedrin, put a sword down and said, you know, the discussion's over toward the house of Shammai and some of the other ones. In other words, what we're saying is right, and if we don't, we'll kill you. So, <laughs> so that, was, that was kind of the environment at the time. But you've got to understand, it was very important to them to do the right thing or else everybody would die, is what they believed. And I, th- I just think it's amazing, ironic, and God's grace that that's exactly what happened. Jesus died for the world in that, in that sense. Mm. Some, some see it different. Some see it as kind of like, well, the Messianic year will come in a kind of a general sense. And some believe it's a human being or, uh, that will come, a king, a literal lineage of King David. That's usually the more orthodox um, and, and so on. So without going into too much detail, but what you're asking is, what do the Jewish people today believe about the Messiah? Correct? Very similar to then, um, except it's applied a little bit different. The Messiah will establish and defend Israel. Um, and so that's why some Orthodox say even the nation of Israel right now isn't legitimate because the Messiah had to establish it. Uh, and, and, but really, it's the final hatred and tyranny against Israel and the Jewish people will be stopped 
And just as in Isaiah 2, where the nations, along with Israel, will go up to Sinai and worship the Lord together. It's kind of the idea of the Messianic. World peace, no more fighting, swords into plowshares, that kind of a thing. That's what the Messiah, and it's very similar to what they were hoping for at the time of Rome. Overthrow Rome, uh, they can have independence, and, and, um, and then we can have where we get the idea of peace on earth, or uh, that he will be a righteous ruler that will bring peace and sovereignty toward the Jewish people, so they're not always picked on. Um, with God? Well, see, the Jewish people also don't necessarily see that, that the Messiah will be God. In fact, that's actually very offensive to them, that God became a human being. Um, and so that, that aspect is, is, is what we talk about, the stumbling board.